Welcome to Can You Hold My Attention? Kingswood U.S. CEO and industry veteran Derek Bruton invites his guests to discuss and debate the latest trends and hottest topics facing financial advisors today. The guest list represents a who's who of the financial services industry. Derek's goal is to provide you with insight into how he and other leaders think about today's challenges and plan for future success. And now, let's see whether or not today's guest can hold Derek's attention. Welcome to Can You Hold My Attention? I'm your host, Derek Bruton, and thank you for tuning into my podcast. This is my eighth episode, and I'm having an absolute blast with these shows. I've heard from many of you, and the feedback has been voluminous and very helpful. So please keep it coming, and please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, Google, and Stitcher. Uh, you know, throughout my 30 plus years in the wealth management industry, I've had the good fortune to meet many, many smart and impressive people. Uh, but I actually met today's guest before I even got a start in this industry. In fact, I met him during my sophomore year in college. 35 years ago, I vividly remember Bill Sharp as a rabid college basketball fan at Stanford. Bill also served as an academic advisor to players on the team in the mid to late 80s, and I can still remember exactly where his seats were at Maples Arena, our home basketball court on the farm. At the time, I didn't know a sharp ratio from any other ratio. I only knew Bill as a Stanford professor who just loved to watch college basketball and as a friend to a bunch of wet-behind-the-ear college basketball players who occasionally needed a reminder about the importance of a college education. So fast forward 35 years, and I have the great pleasure of having Bill Sharp, a Nobel laureate and one of the most famous economists in history on my podcast. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thanks, it's a great pleasure to be here. So I understand you're still brandishing the Cardinal Red and, and attending a lot of basketball games, is that right? Uh, yes, but I attend them as one does many things these days remotely. Uh, we live in Carmel rather than the Bay Area. So uh, I, it's basically TV time. Yeah, it's, that's true. I don't know what I was thinking. Well, maybe, I just, maybe I'm just anxious to get back to, to the norm again mm -hmm. so that we can all go back to basketball games. But as it turns out, the Cardinal women's basketball team is doing very well and is entering the tournament. Uh, unfortunately, the men are, uh, I don't even know if they're NIT bound. I think they're not gonna make it this year, but uh, we'll see. We will see. So uh, let's, let's jump right in. Uh, you developed the Sharp Ratio in 1966 uh, to help investors understand the return of an investment compared to its risk. And at its most basic level, if I'm understanding correctly, the ratio is the average return earned in excess of the risk-free rate per unit of volatility or total risk. So Bill, 55 years later, uh, can you explain why it's still, the Sharpe ratio is still a relative measurement? Well, um, I would say yes, it is used and I would also add misused um, quite frequently. Uh, my, my initial reaction is good grief, we have computers now we can do more than this. Right. Uh, that said, uh, the idea is very simple. As you say, the numerator is on average, how have you done over and above some riskless alternative such as treasuries? Um, and 
the denominator on the bottom is how much risk was entailed in getting that hopefully positive excess return. So it's excess return per unit of risk. And uh, there's an argument that you should arrange your affairs. So that measure for your total portfolio is as high as possible because you can always adjust your leverage up and down. Um, but, uh, and if you have only one number to compute, the Sharpe ratio is certainly not a, not a bad one. That said, it really doesn't apply in the same way for pieces of a portfolio, your equity portion, your fixed portion, this manager, that manager, uh, because then you get into correlations and, and other such things. So I would say it's in some way misused when you see as one does a report, here's the sharp ratio for this part of your portfolio, here it is for that part. Uh, that said, if you're gonna use one number to evaluate a manager, the excess return per unit of risk is not a bad measure, it at least takes into account both aspects. Hmm. Interesting. So when you developed this in 1966, did you have any idea it would become a standard measurement in the industry like it has been? No, I, when I, I entered this field as an economist who took finance in the business school as one field of five for my PhD, and then uh, sort of drifted into the field terms of my research and then ultimately in teaching. Uh, so no, I, I uh, certainly had no idea. And I, I serve on you know, investment committees of a number of nonprofits uh, as one does at this stage of life. And our advisors or our consultants dutifully bring in reports for every meeting with a sharp ratio for every little piece of our overall portfolio, this manager's sharp ratio, that manager's. Uh, and uh, it impresses the other members of the committee until they realize I don't know any more than they do. <laughs> well, I, you know, Back in back in the day when I first met you, I recall my basketball having a coach having something called the Bruton ratio, was the, which was the ratio of missed free throws to basketball games that I participated in. So I'm not nearly as proud of that ratio as I'm sure you are of yours. Uh, but let's fast forward a little bit to 1996 when you co-founded Financial Engines with uh, Stanford professor Joseph Grunfeld. Grunfest and a lawyer in Silicon Valley named Craig Johnson and uh, financial engines use the technology, your technology to implement many of the financial theories in portfolio management and basically brought quality investment advice to people looking for help with their nest eggs. Um, uh, it went public in 2010 when the firm managed, I think it was around 37 billion in assets. Um, and then now, Today, many people know financial engines as Edelman uh, Financial that merged with financial engines. Now it's called Edelman Financial Engines. And I think the firm's up to 200 billion in assets. And if I'm not mistaken, the largest RIA in the country. Um, what was, you know, let's go back to 96. You know, what was the most rewarding aspect of the work you did with financial engines and with your partners there? Well, what our goal was to help 
individuals in 401k and 403b plans um, make sensible decisions as to how they saved, how they invested in order to finance, help finance their retirement at least. So that was the goal. And what we tried to do was to provide every employee in the firm that was our client with information, here's how you're invested, here's the risk, here's the return, here's the range of possible outcomes when you retire, uh, et cetera, and to let them experiment with different portfolios and see how that would affect the ultimate goal of, of retirement saving. And we used a lot of technology, we used returns-based style analysis to try to you know, analyze the individual mutual funds, et cetera, that were available. And we used obviously Monte Carlo projections to the range of possible retirement incomes they might have, et cetera. So we used a lot of technology and developed some additional technology. And again, we, we tried to make everyone in the firm, in the plan, uh, aware of the alternatives. What happens if I save more? What's the range of possible retirements that I might expect given what I'm doing now? And what if I changed? And I think uh, that was both exciting and it was a way to apply a lot of theory um, to practice. And, and, and I think we helped the people since you know, I, I dropped out of the firm after, uh, shortly after it went public. So I can't tell you much about what's gone, going on now, but that was certainly our intent. Right. Well, it certainly seems like uh, your intent was reached. And I know the firm has done a lot of good work in, in helping people in the accumulation phase of their life. And, and then after that, um, in 2017, uh, just a few years ago, you wrote an ebook called Retirement Income Analysis with Scenario Matrices. Uh, and I read it, Bill, and honestly, it was a, a little bit like a, a dog looking at a ceiling fan, just staring at a ceiling fan. I, uh, I, uh, it was algorithm overload, as I'd say, but, uh, but I could tell it was quite interesting and one of those things where, you know, hey, uh, People smarter than me have figured this out, and uh, and I skip to the uh, the end, the conclusion. Um, but tell us a little bit about the work, and you know what drove you to take on the topic of retirement income at this point in your career. Well, I I, I sort of think of myself as having three research and application phases. Um, originally, I was focused on individuals accumulating. And then as part of that phase, uh, then I guess you would call it maybe a second phase, uh, helping defined benefit pension plans better manage their assets. And then I turned to helping people saving for retirement to manage their assets. And then I guess I'm getting to four now. And then I turned to helping people who are just retiring, plan how to use their assets to finance their retirement right. after they've stopped 
accumulating in there in the decumulation phase. Uh, so um, the the book you mentioned or ebook I call it because that's the format it, it takes and it's available for free. Um, I wanted to write a software suite to be able to generate 100,000 scenarios, say, of what might happen to you and your partner, given your investments, et cetera. And so I took the easy way out and I just wrote one ebook that had all the software in it, including here's how to write programs in MATLAB, as well as here's some investment theory, thereby guaranteeing almost nobody would do more than you have tried and many would do less than that. But, but basically what I was trying to do was address the issues. You're retired, you've got social security, you've got your savings from your 401k plan, you've probably got some other savings. What do you do? And what are some of the alternatives that people are offering and provide the software so you could, you know, put that information for you into it and get all kinds of analyses, hopefully with the help of an advisor to guide you through all this in order to understand, well, if I do this, here's the range of things that could happen. If I do that, here's the range that could happen. Right. And in the process, I developed, I think, some, some new analytic techniques. And uh, I'm a great believer. I call it scenario analysis rather than Monte Carlo simulation because I don't like the, the idea it's a gamble. Um, but it's basically, there are a lot of things that could happen to you if you do this with your investments. And a lot of things that could happen to you if you do that with your investments. And the relatively easy part is generating the range of things that could happen to you. The hard part is figuring out a way to make that comprehensible to an ordinary intelligent human being who doesn't want to look at thousands of probability distributions, one for each year, right. et cetera, et cetera. I have not solved that latter problem, nor I suspect will anybody really solve it. Uh, but it's a very, very difficult problem. And uh, I wanted to sort of take a whack at it, develop maybe some new techniques, try some things, experiment, and, and lay out at least the issues involved. And, and that's, that's what I set out to do. So I want to dive deeper into the scenario matrices, as you call them in your book. But I want to take a brief moment to take a break here, and we'll be right back with Bill Sharp. Are you a broker dealer and or investment advisor in search of non-traditional approach to compliance risk management? In today's ever-changing regulatory landscape, compliance risk concepts turns risk into reward. As former in-house compliance officers, compliance risk concepts has the experience and knowledge to help organizations develop a healthy viewpoint of risk focused on sustainability and growth. They take a solutions-oriented approach to compliance risk management. Let the team at Compliance Risk Concepts do what it does best so you can do what you do best. To learn more about Compliance Risk Concepts, visit compliance-risk.com. Once again, compliance-risk.com.
Well, welcome back. Uh, Bill, you go into depth about scenario matrices in your ebook. And by the way, for everyone listening, uh, the ebook is called Retirement Income Analyses with Scenario Matrices. And as Bill just told us, it's free. Look it up um, and take a read. But you go into these scenario matrices uh, where you use the algorithms you've created to help determine whether a retiree will have enough income to live out the rest of their lives. And you mentioned the different scenarios, investment scenarios, but there's also life scenarios that play into these matrices. Is that right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. One of the, one of the, you know, a matrix is basically a hundred thousand different multi-year stories, you know, so there's a matrix of who's alive. <laughs> and so in each, in a, each scenario there's, well, first three years, you're both alive. And then for another 10 years, partner one is alive. And then after that, for three years, partner two is alive. And there are 100,000 of these alternatives because there are lots of combinations if you think about it. Right. And then there's another one for what's the market gonna do? You know, what about riskless securities? And then from that, you can generate income. Well, here's the income from social security in all these different scenarios in different years. Here's the income if I invest some of this money in this particular kind of annuity from a particular company, et cetera, et cetera. And then you add all those incomes together to find out in each scenario, in each year, what the income will be. And then you try to sit, sit back and say, well, with this strategy, I've got all these things that could happen. And then with that strategy, I've got all those things that could happen and somehow or other gets your mind around which of those two monstrous sets of data you would prefer to have. And therein, as you can imagine, lies the, the really hard problem. So let's say you arrived at that and you, I picked uh, scenario number one, for example, that's, that's what I determined is the most resembling of my life. What's the conclusion then? What, what's the to do after that, if you will? Well, I, I wouldn't let you look at one scenario because because that's not the real world. You don't know how long you're going to live. You don't know how long your partner's going to live. You don't know how the markets are going to do. You've got to somehow or other say, well, if I make this set of decisions vis-a-vis -vis my investments and annuities, then here's the whole range of things that could happen. If I make that set decision, here's this different range of things. And therein lies the problem. How do you, I mean, the only thing that you can pretty well say, well, social security, you can get your mind around. If we're both alive, we get X. If I'm alive, I get Y. If your partner's alive, you get Z. And that's pretty much it. <laughs> but, but anything else, markets go up and down, people die, you know, it's, it's very hard. So that's that's why you bring in math, and that's why you bring in the algorithms is to is to simplify all these different variables. Well, I, I'm I'm not sure it simplifies it. it you, the question is how do you when you're done, you have you know a hundred thousand scenarios, and in each scenario somebody lives, somebody dies. You get a certain amount of income in the first year, and the second, and the third. And the question is how do you get your mind around that and and I've tried to provide all kinds of different graphical outputs from which you can choose. 
and I'm, I'm also working with some friends who are behavioral psychologists, academics, see if I can get them interested in trying to figure out efficient ways to communicate this set of alternatives versus that set of alternatives, um, because it's certainly beyond me. So one of the one of the things I often hear from people is just the um, life expectancies uh, from say twenty five years ago versus now changed dramatically, right? With yes. technology and with a focus on health and just all these factors going on, the time the decumulation phase of one's life is is grown. Um, so that's that must play some part in, in the scenarios that you're talking about, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, you have to input mortality tables. Uh, the ones that I have in the version that's available are now sort of outdated, but you have to put in mortality tables, which indicate the probability of a 73 year old, a man who is 73 in 2031 will die in, in that year, assuming he's alive and then another one for women, and you have all kinds of mortality projections. I might say, however, that the increase in longevity, and which you allude to, which has been huge, uh, has shown some signs even before the pandemic of coming, if not to a screeching halt, at least slowing down. Oh, interesting. And, and um, now it's everybody's guess, of course, exactly what will happen. But uh, we've seen, you've been seeing numbers saying life expectancy for certain groups is now one year less than it was before the pandemic, which is a misleading number because that assumes that there'll be another pandemic when right. people make that kind of calculation. Mm -hmm. But social security and, and many, I use actuarial data from the Society of Actuaries. There are estimates as to how much better longevity will get for men, for women, et cetera, year by year. Those are what I used, but again, you know, those are all somewhat speculative. Right. Well, I know the mortality rate in the Bruton household is very predictable. If I don't clean the garage this next weekend, I'll know exactly <laughs> how long I'll be living. Uh, but so Bill, are you, are you worried about baby boomers having enough income for their retirement? Uh, you know, taking account we, we just talked about with life expectancy, but other factors as well? Absolutely. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, we're seeing two phenomena, which I, I rather, well, three, in any event, we're seeing people enter the serious workforce later in life. And we're seeing people wanting to retire. And we're seeing people, as we've mentioned, living longer. And we're seeing people want to retire at the same age people retired before them. And that kind of doesn't compute if you're not entering the workforce until later and you're leaving at the same time as before, then you've got fewer working years. Right. And if you're living longer, you've got more retirement years. Uh, so all of that is a serious problem. And what is, do you think corporate America, and I say corporate, I don't mean just big companies, but any company for that matter that offers a 401k plan and, um, and has, has employees that are 
in this phase where they're saving for retirement. Is corporate America doing enough to help people manage their retirement income? I can't honestly say I know the answer because I haven't been that close to it for the last decade or so. Uh, but I, I, I suspect the answer is no. Although you're certainly hearing about lots of innovative products coming, products that com combine saving with annuitization in the 401k plan while you're in the accumulation phase. And there, there, there's a whole raft of new products, partly because it's now allowed under federal regulations uh, that allow you to start buying either pieces of an annuity while you're still saving or pieces of an option to buy an annuity when you retire. Right. So right. you can start locking in, you know, guaranteed income or the option to have a guaranteed income at, on given terms uh, earlier in, in life, which is a good thing, assuming that people understand what they're doing. Well, and there's a lot of firms out there too. I know uh, personally, some of my uh, former colleagues that work with firms that are focused on wellness in, in the workplace and, and helping, helping investors understand their options uh, as, they're, as they're in the accumulation phase. And, um, but it's oftentimes up to the plan sponsors, the employers to be smart enough to recognize those needs out there and know that there's a raft of, of, of options for them to to, to go out and use, uh, but you, you got to be able to use them, right? No, yeah, and absolutely. No, I mean, the, there's a real burden on the employers uh, and a real, I would say, obligation on the part of the employer to help their, their employees understand as much as, as they need to about this whole process. Right. So what, what do you think is the best way for a near retiree um, a lot of us, I think, thought we were near retirees until COVID hit and some other things went mm -hmm. on. But, but what's the best way for a near retiree to get a full understanding of their retirement situation and then somehow get to some level of peace of mind? Uh, well, the latter is an easier question to answer. Uh, to get to some level of peace of mind, they're probably going to have to save more <laughs> or work longer than they were hoping to. Um, but... Uh, again, it goes back to helping them understand at least the rudiments of what it means to have enough to, in all likelihood, be able to retire comfortably. And, you know, the easiest way to be sh as sure as possible is to annuitize, um, because otherwise you're, you're your savings are going to probably fund you and, and your kids or your universities, uh, which is a good thing. <laughs> right, but, right. Uh, but to just, just that basic understanding. And uh, so I, I really think it's not something employers probably really in the best of all worlds would want to do, but they're at the point where this can be done as well as it can be. So I think employers really need to help their employees understand as much as, as they need to, to make sensible decisions, including working longer. Right, well, and, and saving more, as you, as you said. And saving more, for sure. Yeah. So you and, mentioned- you know, there's, a, 
save more tomorrow. Dick Thaler and others uh, have, have pushed this idea with good cause in which you sort of default your employees unless they tell you otherwise you increase their contribution rate, you know, year after year as they are employed in the firm till they get up to a, a, a greater savings rate. They don't have to, but if they don't do anything, that will happen. That's very helpful. Yeah. And it's well, been very, very successful, I would say. Well, one of the, one of the interesting things going on, one of the trends in our industry right now is holistic planning. And many advisors are very much coming around to, under, to realizing that they don't just money, manage money in a vacuum for their clients, that they need to look at estate and insurance and saving rates and the retirement plans and all that. So I think there are advisors in America bringing education to these clients who are in that accumulation phase. And, and for some advisors, it's tough because these aren't the biggest clients. These are people that, you know, that might not have bought their first house or they may not have children that they started saving for education. So, um, so really getting a grasp of that, of how much to save and how long to work um, that sometimes maybe, maybe the best thing to do is to talk to an advisor about that. Oh, absolutely. I have no, no question about that. And, you know, one of the problems in the industry is that you typically, when you re, let's say you've just retired and you've got your 401k and some savings, uh, and you need help, typically you would go to an investment advisor or an insurance salesperson. Right. And if you went to the former, you've got portfolios. If you went to the latter, you've got an annuity. And you know most people probably ought to have both. Um, and so I think it, it falls, given the present reality, on the employer to try to help people understand those are two alternatives and they're not exclusive and they have rather different properties because the annuity allows you to pool longevity risk. Uh, the investment, generally, you have to fund the longevity risk. Right. And so I think at the very least, people need a rudimentary understanding of that. And for many people, the, the, the right answer is both, not one or the other. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about a vehicle out there with the aspects of both. When I grew up in this business, it was it was a lot like, you know, when I went to Stanford, you're, you're taught to hate Cal. You're not sure why, but they're blue and gold and they're across the bay and you're taught to hate them. I, well, I should say, I should say, I spent my freshman year at Cal and my rest of UCLA. So in football season, I was highly conflicted. <laughs> well, I didn't know that part about you with Cal, Bill, but I'm going to continue this podcast nonetheless. Uh, so, you know, growing up on the RIA side, what you're taught to hate is annuities. And there's plenty of firms out there we see all the time. It's a very polarizing topic in financial services, this the annuities. And so do you think, you know, what are your thoughts just basically on annuities? And do you think some of the criticisms are deserved? Well, the first thing you have to worry about is, you know, what's the financial, you know, solidity of, of, of the provider. And yes, there are state insurance plans that will, will help in the case of a default, but, but that's, that's certainly something to be concerned with. And then I, I've looked at 
more of these annuities, especially the new fancier ones than, than I wish I had. And they are so terminally complicated. I mean, right. I mean social security, right. which is of course the annuity most of us have, um, is hard enough to, to deal with, you know, but, but by and large, it's pretty simple in terms of what you get. And, um, but then you have the choice of when you claim and all that. But some of these annuities, and I think some of them are possibly intentionally complicated. It's hard to understand. And some of them play to, you know, investors' hopes and dreams in ways that, you know, they could hardly never, they could possibly never understand, you know, with ratchets, et cetera, and, and exactly what does it do and what's the chance that the market will go up more than 10% or fall more than 20. They're very complicated. But uh, somehow or other, we need to have advice from whomever that really doesn't care whether you buy an annuity or invest your money, or that somehow or other, either their concern for the client is sufficient or the remuneration is not sufficiently affected by one choice or the other. It's, and, and one solution to that is to let the employer do it. Right. Uh, well, it's, it's certainly the, the regulators have played a bigger part in, in um, across the industry with a, every product in terms of enhancing transparency or forcing the product sponsors to enhance transparency, particularly as it relates to the one dig you always hear on annuities, which is the fees. And so, uh, and, and transparency is helping the industry bring down some of those fees. And I think that's going to be good because it does bring those two aspects, like you talked about earlier, of the insurance plus the investment together. Um, uh, just, just a quick plug for my software. <laughs> my sure. software you can put an annuity these terms into it and um, and it will tell you at least given all the many assumptions that are, that go into it well um, this is worth the benefits you're getting from this are x and the cost is y and the difference is presumably what the an, an annuity provider is getting so you can get a sense at least uh, and this this even works for some of these very complex products. So one of the things you can do, and again, I'm not offering this software as the be all and end all, but as an indicator of what good software might be able to do. And you could find the software within your ebook. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, it's all available. It's you can download the software in one fell swoop. Well, one thing I did see in there, Bill, and I thought it was interesting, was this concept of lockbox annuities. Uh, can you briefly explain what, what, what you meant by lockbox annuities? I'm not sure I can do it briefly. Let me try. <laughs> <laughs> if you think about, think about sort of a, a plan where you spend each year in retirement your required minimum distribution, the IRS makes you pay taxes if you've got a tax advantage savings, say 401k. You have to pay tax at least on a certain percentage of that every year. So the first year it might be at 10% and the next year you've got to take out 12%, et cetera. And the, the percentage grows. And, and, and that's a scheme that some people just use. They say, well, I'll spend 10% of what I have at the end of the first year 
and then I'll spend 15% of what I have at the second end of the second year, et cetera. And, and that's, that's a retirement spending rule. You can use the percentages in the RMD or you can make your own percentages. Any event, uh, it turns out that's equivalent to having a lockbox. Let's see, we're in 2021. So you've got a lockbox for 2022 and you've got some investments in it and you have a lockbox for 2023. So when 2022 comes, you open that lockbox and cash in the investments and that's what you spend that year, right. et cetera, et cetera. So the idea is you have a lockbox and the reason I call it a lockbox is you put in it typically a nice index fund maybe of the world market bond portfolio, bond stock portfolio and some treasury bills, treasury strips, something like that safe asset, risky asset, diversified. You put that in and you leave it alone. And then in a year you open it and spend it. And the block box for 2040, you put in and then leave it alone till 2040 and then spend it. And it turns out if in each lock box, most of these people who use this proportional spending rule have a single investment fund and they have it become more conservative. It starts off with more stocks, and then the next year you move more to bonds, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So it's a decreasing risk portfolio. Well, you can do that in each of the lockboxes too, but it turns out if you do that, you are subject to what's called sequence of returns risk. You, you bear, when you take the money out, not only the risk of how the market's done over the span, of time, but also, you know, how it moved around during the span of time. And that's a risk which, at least in theory, is not rewarded with higher expected return. Taking market risk for the period of time is on average rewarded. Sequence of returns risk isn't. The lockbox approach allows you to skip the sequence of returns risk if you just put the different portions in. And then you know, you can do that yourself, or you can let an insurance company do it and spread the mortality risk or longevity risk among a bunch of people. So you don't need as much money to get a given set of outcomes, or you get better outcomes out of a given set of money. Now, of course, you may get better outcomes, but your kids in your universities get nothing. So it's, it's not a free lunch. So that's fascinating. Has anybody kind of turned this into a, a product yet? Or have you spoken to anybody about this? Uh, I've spoken to people about it, but to my knowledge, nobody's turned it into a product. But, you know, someone may have. Well, somebody might listen to this call. And if it if they end up turning a product, maybe, a, I don't know, maybe I can get a share of the royalties. Let's go. Well, about it, but... well, I, I can't. <laughs> Maybe you may, but I can't. <laughs> it's all free. This is public domain. <laughs> uh, well, hey, just coming back to a broad economic question, it'll be our last one. Um, from your perspective, are you hopeful for the country and the, and the economy over the next five years? Or are we putting ourselves so far behind the eight ball that you're nervous about you know, a lot of what's going on in the future of America? Well, I'm, ner I'm the latter. I'm nervous. Um, whether we're behind an eight ball and whether we put ourselves there or not. I, you know, I leave to people who are more intelligent than I am. But no, I mean, as I say, the, the, the prospect, 
and the demographics are not good. Uh, you know, we used to not have that many old people for the working people to support. And now the working people, as I said earlier, are working or trying to work fewer years and they've got more old people to support per, per capita. Uh, there's some advantage, they don't have as many kids to support because they're having fewer children. But that then is, that's in many ways, the reason we've got so many, you know, old people uh, and we've got a smaller base of working people uh, to support them. We've got many, a lot more old people because people are living longer, which is a great right. thing. But I, I just don't think we've really adjusted to the current demographics let alone the future demographics, uh, which are going to be more challenging. And, you know, one way or the other, people are almost certainly going to have to work longer. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, well, Bill, it's, it's certainly been a pleasure having you on the show today. Uh, your impressive career has no end, even as you sit there and enjoy beautiful Carmel, California, and everything that area has to offer. Um, I, I know your, your mind's still racing and looking to, to do what you can to, to help us who are struggling with what to do as we head into retirement and then certainly what to do after retirement. Um, but uh, thank you again. I, I look forward to seeing you when we get back to, um, to uh, some Stanford basketball games again. All right. Well, I, I really appreciate your, your doing this. It's been great reconnecting with you after all these many years. And uh, uh, hopefully uh, we'll be back. The team will be back uh, with people in the stands. I may still be watching on television, but uh, it's, it's, it's a great, great program. And uh, we were all very lucky to have been at Stanford as, as we were. And we thank were. you very much, Derek. This has been great fun. Well, thank you again, Bill. And thank you all for listening today. You can, again, subscribe to Can You Hold My Attention podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as through our LinkedIn page with the same name, Can You Hold My Attention. Have a great day and stay safe, everyone. Bye-bye.